Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been affected by and overcome adversity. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of a variety of guests, as well as your host. You will hear stories of despair, recovery, and triumph from people who have risen from or are making their way through wilderness experiences. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep, productive look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of affliction. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real-life stuff that all of us face. You will hear wisdom and hope from people who are fighters, who fought to persevere through bewildering circumstances and difficult obstacles. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Thanks for coming back, everyone. I'm really excited about this week's conversation. It is with another person who I have found to be just precious, as well as inspiring and encouraging from the rooms, from my own personal rooms of recovery. Her name is Jessica. And what I have found so interesting is that she has an experience like so many of us that led her through the craziness and the upheaval and the pain and tears that loving somebody with an addiction causes. I read a post today that said, um, drugs were in my life and I've never been addicted to them. And it was the mother of somebody who had an addicted son. And that is so relatable because it makes everybody around it crazy and sad and scared. And it's quite a journey. But if you can find your way into recovery, especially the rooms, um, you can find your way forward and even end up having a more beautiful life than expected. One thing I love about when Jessica shares is when she describes her early days and when she first got into recovery, this anger she had and she's fiery about it. Because when you've seen somebody after they've come through some healing and transformation, you can't even imagine. I know we have other people in the rooms that I've watched that process and it's such a beautiful thing to see someone awaken and start to come out of their pain and sadness and anger into a calmer life and then even a a grateful life. And as things go up and down and we work through them. So she's just somebody who as she has described her story week after week and contributed. I've gained so much insight from and really enjoyed. So with that said, I wanna thank you so much for coming on and welcome Jessica, if we can just get right to it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess first, I just want to say that, you know, I am grateful for the Al-Anon program, Naranon, and then in a greater sense, uh, AA and NA, because I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in without those programs and truthfully without the grace and time and patience of other people from the rooms um, throughout the years who have listened to me and have inspired me and you know, let me be myself and allowed me to walk through this process uh, without fear and not alone. Um, I guess to get started, um, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm from a really large family. Uh, My mom is one of six. My dad is one of eight. Everybody lives in Columbus, Ohio. I moved to Florida uh, two years ago and I had a cousin that moved away. But other than that, Everyone is right on top of each other in Columbus, Ohio. Um, Yes, so much so that I can just randomly see my cousins, you know, at the store or wherever. Um, With that being said, I I was definitely raised in a loving family. My parents and my actual home, I do not believe is alcoholic. However, um, there is alcoholism, uh, untreated, untreated mental health issues, untreated trauma, in my extended family. And those, those things certainly influenced my parents. Um, and then through that would obviously by default influence me and the way that I was raised. Um, I'm from a really proud family too. And pride is in some ways an asset to me, but is also a character defect, which mm-hmm. I guess I'll get to as I explain this further. Um, and you know, we were raised to take care of each other. And so then also on top of it, with that, you're raised to be in everybody's business. <laughs> so if you have, uh, people that maybe need to be in recovery in some form and aren't, uh, that can get really complicated when you are dealing with issues like 
drug addiction and alcoholism um, and things like that. So that is kind of where I came from. Um, And I was also, you know, in the sense, raised in a loving home and also was told I could be myself. And I have, you know, good, healthy self-esteem because of that. And I also know through the kind of jobs that I've done, um, I've been primarily uh, worked in the domestic violence field. I know what that does to people um, and within families when you're not raised in loving family systems uh, with people who really hold you up and take care of you. And then subsequently, the way that that also impacts people, um, again, with untreated mental illness and addiction issues. Um, So with that being said, um, you know, my teenage years, you know, I smoked weed, um, underage drank, I think in a, what would be considered a normal kind of capacity. Um, I, my friends did as well. Um, As I got uh, a little bit older uh, within my friend group, a lot of that started to change. Um, But again, you don't necessarily know what addiction is going to look like or the signs of it or the way that this is all going to play out. Um, I met my qualifier, who is my partner. Uh, When I was 18, he was 17. I met him right before I graduated from high school. Um, And, you know, he's one of the most uh, caring, understanding, funny, smart people I've ever known. Um, He was one of my really good friends. I always felt comfortable around him. Um, I always felt respected by him. Uh, And I've always really liked what was at the time just a friendship. Um, when we got into the beginning of our twenties, uh, a romantic relationship developed. We had both been dating, um, other people. We dated each other that at the time was like controversial within this friend group. And subsequently, uh, his drug use, um, really started to pick up, uh, other people within our friend group. And some of them on the periphery, uh, were also, using drugs, which developed into using heroin and other types of opiates. Um, And there was a lot of different ways of dealing with that as friends. I think that I had a hard time because I was, I saw a lot of his behavior that other people didn't see because we were romantically involved with each other. Um, And I saw a lot of, you know, behavior that was scary to me and behavior that I didn't know what to do with. um, Because I thought that you know, he was going to die. Um, Mm -hmm. And also because when we met each other, we were so young, I knew his family well, you know, we were teenagers. So I would be at his, his parents were divorced, but I would be at his mom's house often. And there was this um, weekend, this would have been now in 2006, that we didn't know where he was as a group of friends. We didn't know where he was. His phone was off. We hadn't heard from him. And then his mother started calling around, trying to speak to us to figure out where he was. And I was the only one without a, out of our friend group that was willing to tell her um, he's doing heroin and we don't know where he is. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget that phone call, which then led to me being in her living room, talking to her about this more, almost kind of like a interrogation of sorts, but I didn't have any answers. And this was interrogating you. Well, just like, how long has this been going on? Why is this, who knows this is happening? Yeah. You know, this type of thing. And, um, I didn't know a lot of those things. I had an idea, um, but not, well, one, it's not my responsibility to answer for him, but at the same time, this is where you know, when you're first getting into dealing with um, other people's substance abuse problems, you, f- you feel a sense of responsibility to them, for them, to explain things, um, which is also called, you know, codependency, but to try to circumvent um, different problems as they're happening or before they're happening. And yeah, and you're in it, you broke the news. So that's kind of like, there's a whole different dynamic to that too, because the family is so tightly, you know, connected to the disorder, even before everyone's aware of it, there's certain things that are going on. I'm sure you're aware of that. So to break the news, you start the ripple effect of truth, which kind of puts the heat on the, you know, the messenger. Right. Well, and we, at the moment, still couldn't find him. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you know, I'm 22 and this is happening. And that was really difficult. Um, and then from there started, you know, kind of his first round of going in and out of treatment. Um, something that, you know, is definitely my experience. This by no means, you know, speaks to what has happened for other people, but I feel like when you're, especially in the beginning of your twenties, or even maybe as a teen and you're doing program stuff. So he was going to NA at the time. I went to my first ever Naranam meeting, um, when I was 22 and some of that stuff felt so unrelatable. Um, I remember talking to him, you know, he would go to his meeting, I would go to my meeting, whatever, then we would come back and discuss it. And some stuff felt so unrelatable because you're listening to people who have, you know, are maybe decades older than you, who have kids of their own that they're detached from, lost jobs, lost houses, lost marriages, um, and, and the wreckage of what that is. And sometimes I felt like that was hard to relate to at that age because you're, you're not even old enough yet to have those things, let alone to lose them. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So it was easy. It wasn't that I never thought like, oh, this isn't for us, but it was kind of like, well, I understand what you're saying, but I mean, like that hasn't happened here yet. And I know that's your story. Right. Yes. (laughs) And, and as you go through, um, program, especially later on when I get back into program, um, you know, the biggest thing is you go in there, you're looking for all the differences between you and these other people Mm -hmm. and why, you don't really need to be here and why your circumstances are different than them. And so why there's more hope for you that it will become normal and be over because I think that's what we initially go to those rooms for, because we're not aware that this is a lifelong process. And if we think it might be, there's a negative spin put on it. Like, I don't want to deal with this for the rest of my life. I don't want to deal with this for another year. How soon can we get back to normal where this is over? So you're trying to kind of, you know, find your footing and see your differences. And then all of a sudden the awakening starts. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was just easier to dismiss then, I think on both of our parts. So then basically it's like 2008 and I, I'm again, um, kind of of the opinion of like, all right, just like, don't do heroin anymore. You know, if you still smoke weed sometimes, or you still drink like fine, whatever, like that's what I do. So just be like me, like, obviously (laughs) you can't just do these like harder drugs and doing these harder drugs is the issue. And if you're not doing those harder drugs, we don't have a problem. And that's really the way that um, we operated. So, you know, I graduate from college. Um, he doesn't. He subsequently fails out of college during these years of all of this. And, but in, in general, our life mostly appears normal. Um, again, I, I get a job at the local domestic violence shelter. I ultimately start working at the city of Columbus and the domestic violence unit uh, prosecutor's office there. Um, he has a good job. Uh, you know, we acquire things together as adults do. We go on vacations, we go on family vacations. Everything is good or normal or mm-hmm. how I would have expected anything to be. And, and also in regards to the job that I had, which was incredibly difficult, he was always supportive of me um, doing that type of work because when you're exposed to much like other people's addiction, when you're exposed to other people's violence, which is what doing domestic violence work is like, that takes a toll on you too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always felt, you know, comforted by him and understood by him when, you know, I wasn't having a good day or, you know, a week sometimes, uh, because it, it really, you know, takes you for a ride as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what is actually happening during these years is that he is doing, um, drugs behind my back and I'm unaware of this. So I have, you know, if I see him drinking or whatever, or if we're drinking socially, but on his own, there's this whole other secret life taking place of people, places, and things that I don't know about, and I'm not involved in. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I think that was easy for him to do because one, I wasn't looking for it. And two, um, he worked, I, I worked kind of traditional hours Monday through Friday, uh, like a nine to five span. And he didn't, he worked second shift and sometimes into the weekend. So it would be, it wasn't weird if he was asleep through the better part of the day because he was up late working. So I never really suspected anything in addition to, 
you know, he always paid his half of everything. Um, it's, it's not like there was, there weren't, there weren't other signs, um, until, uh, 2012 into 2013. And so this is really a, a period of years that we lived like this. And I'm again, unaware of what's actually happening. So a lot of his behavior started to change and it, and he was kind of cold towards me or indifferent. And that's, again, that's not who he is. I, he's, you know, someone that I trust, that I feel loved by, that I feel supported by. Um, and, you know, it is a companion. And so to get this kind of other undertone feeling from him, I'm like, well, what is this? Because historically what happens is he pulls away when something is wrong. And then I become hyper aware of the fact that he's pulled away. Something's up, right. And so I, it was September, 2012, and I confronted him and I was like, I feel like you're doing drugs again. And he said, I am, I'm doing pills. And I was like, okay, so what are you gonna do about that? And then started, all right, I'm gonna go to NA. And I tried as best as I could to stay out of that, um, but it was hard. And again, through doing like social services as a job, this has, this was a double-edged sword for me because I have an idea about how the helping profession is supposed to work when you go into treatment. Um, and even then, you know, what is non-professional help, which is AA and NA. And then I had what I was seeing from him. So it was good because I understood how this was supposed to work. But then it was bad because I was searching constantly for what was what was happening and what was he doing and was 100% up his ass trying <laughs> to monitor this situation. Um, and then there was like, this led to maybe, as he would describe, like six months of like white knuckling it. And then came the spring of 2013 and his behavior, he left the house for a week, then he came back and he, he looked terrible, he smelled like alcohol. And I, and I was like, no, you know, absolutely not. And so I kicked him out of the house and he didn't fight me on that. Um, and, and I kicked him out of the house because I don't, not only do I not want this in my house, but I also knew even though he had not used heroin yet, I fully believed that that was coming. Mm -hmm. And I knew that because I already had this experience with him from before, I can't do anything about that. I can't, I can't help him. I can't stop him from doing this. I can't stop him from killing himself. And I was absolutely terrified, not only that he was going to die, but that he was going to die in the house and that I was going to have to still live in the house that he died in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, I was working like I said, at the prosecutor's office. And it's like, I can't, you know, I wasn't going to put what I, my career or what I had been working on for myself um, and on hold and have, and, and have him come down and like destroy all of that. Well, because what were those days like when you're going to work and you're working in the violence business basically and helping people and then you're going home and suspecting or even finding out and then having to go to work and appear normal when it, I know what it does inside you when you have to go work a full-time job and then, you know, fold the laundry and go to the grocery store and manage the hurricane going on. Um, what were those days like? Absolutely terrible. And to, to make it worse. So I, so the domestic violence cases in the courthouse happen in every, uh, courtroom. So with every judge, but there's specialty docket. So we have a drug court at home. And I coincidentally was the domestic violence advocate assigned to the judge that ran drug court. Okay. So all day would be people coming in to court, nodding off like, hi, um, just, you know, that type of behavior. So it's like, I would see that during my work day, I would see him and I'm like, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. I can't, I can't like, be around this. And that, that was incredibly difficult. And e even outside of, you know, being assigned to the drug court, 
I had substance abuse uh, problems as part of my domestic violence cases that I handled as well. So there was there was no type of escaping it. Wow. Um, and we also had a big uptick because uh, I also want to mention domestic violence and drug addiction are two separate things. They can converge, but they are two separate things and one does not cause the other. Right. However, and I mean domestic violence in the sense of intimate partner relationships. Mm-hmm. What was happening um, because of how bad the opiate and you know heroin problem is at home is that we were having domestic violence cases that were adult children um, as the defendant and then their parents as the victim because the adult child was in active addiction, uh, lost whatever their apartment or housing was, was back in at the parents' house, and then there was a conflict. And so again, it didn't necessarily have power and control dynamics in the way that you see traditional intimate partner DVs having, but you had something happening with drugs, an event occurring between within the family, the police being called, and then now it's a DV case. And so I was, I was also talking to families that were going through the exact same thing that I was going through. Wow. Yeah. And which, which again was, was both good and bad. I could empathize with them. I understood exactly where they were coming from, but again, it's not like I was like, you know, I worked at a bank or something or like in some kind of traditional office sense. It was like, you know, 24 seven helping people slash dealing with this problem. And you know, to be perfectly honest, at different points, especially then, because I was not doing recovery yet at all. I don't know how I got through it because I literally felt crazy. You, you do. And I think you, you see yourself and you see your person in every situation. And like you in, in terms of hope, in terms of this is hopeless, in terms of this is where it's headed, or this is what I should try. And I think I always talk about the space that we go into where we want them to get it so bad because we want them to be healthy and well and you know normal. And so we try to figure out what it's gonna take for them to get it and to keep it, you know, as far as waking up and wanting to be healthy and clean and drug-free and all of that. So I think sometimes when we're around it so much and we see, you know, worst case scenarios or best case scenarios, we kind of latch our story onto it at first. Yes. Well, and again, like I'm supposed to maintain a professional boundaries at work. But those are being like, I, I had to fight to keep those up because it's being whittled away by the fact that I'm watch. I, I could listen to people come in and tell me my own story. Yeah. And this, this is my work setting. So this is not supposed to be about me. I'm here to help you yeah. not, you know, in the reverse. So that was a major, that, that played a major factor in me realizing, okay, you need to fucking do something about this so you don't lose your mind um while simultaneously watching him you know lose his so that the summer of 2013 was bad um I also knew because he was so like I said just cold and indifferent towards me and that's not the way that he was it in general I knew like I can't talk to you about this you know it it was clear to me you don't have any respect for me you don't have any respect for yourself you don't have any respect for this relationship and until those things change, we're going to go in circles in this. So there, and again, you deal with drug addiction, alcoholism long enough, you can't reason with it. So it, it, I knew better than to try, which was good. Right. That is good because we do try. I remember somebody saying to me, would you walk into a bar at last call and find a person who'd been drinking whiskey all night and try to talk sense to them? You would never do that. And that's really though, essentially not to that same degree, but what we do. So that is good to realize it early that you're, you're not going to reason with it. Right. And so I kind of just, I I would stay back kind of on the periphery and just kind of watched him fall apart that summer. Um, You know, he lost a lot of weight. He looked bad. He ended up getting his own apartment because since I had kicked him out of the house and just, you know, weird working and maintaining in in that nature. Yes. He was still working. Um, He, and that's the other thing I, throughout any of this, never picked up any of his financial slack. I had to absorb all the bills in our home because I kicked him out of the house, but he ended up getting his own place and then subsequently his own bills and then ultimately didn't pay any of those bills. But I just had to let that happen. Um, so then by the fall of, of 2013, I felt like he was, you know, 
kind of down and out enough that I was, because when I go back to saying he was cold and indifferent, he had such, when he was like that, he had such a swagger about him that I just wanted to like smack him in his face. Cause I'm just like, how dare you act like, like, who are you? And how dare you act like this? Like you're like, Ooh, I'm just great. And everything's fine. <laughs> that is but, the worst. I'll be honest. Yeah. You have no right to be confident or have a good day. We're exactly. all supposed to be suffering. Exactly. It's, it's like, Oh, who are you? Are you my girlfriend? I'm just like, Oh, how dare you? So that dwindled. And so when that dwindled, I was like, okay, let me reapproach this. So um, I went then to his apartment and confronted him. And then it was clear by the looks of his apartment and the look of him that he was doing heroin, even though I had already suspected it, but it was clear that day and it, and it was undeniable. Um, so then that kicked off from September to December of going in and out of rehab six different times. Um, chaos each time. I mean, the, the, the craziest kinds of stories. And then, you know, him going to rehab, running away from rehab. He ran away that Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving night. Um, just all kinds of bullshit. Everything that anyone that's ever gone through this lives with, you know, you're not eating, you're not sleeping. This is all that you can think about. You're barely functioning. Um, you're afraid they're going to die. They look terrible every time you go and find them again, um, or they reemerge from wherever the hell they've been. And, you know, just awful. And one thing I will say is that most of the time when, when it's bad like that, we're not, we don't necessarily fight or argue with each other. It's just sad. It's, yeah. it's, it's sad. It's heartbreaking to see him look that way. And again, what I was talking about in regards to that swagger, that's all the way gone. So I, I can tell that he's miserable. Mm -hmm. He's not walking around trying to like stun on me, trying to act like whatever. He looks miserable. He looks scared. He looks ashamed. And this is my partner. This, this is my confidant. This is my best friend. And it's gut-wrenching to, to watch him look like that. Um, and then he feels helpless. I feel helpless. Um, his family was also they're not in recovery still currently and weren't necessarily helpful to me in dealing with this. So a lot of times, unless something really pertinent was happening, did I really let them know what was going on? Because it was too much. It was like, I'm trying to manage the situation and now I got to manage you. I'm not. So I would just cut my losses. And one of my biggest um, supporters ended up being who was my best friend uh, that I met at work. Her ex-husband, the father of her child is also a heroin addict. So we were, and still are, um, I think each other's biggest supporters and senses of, sense of strength uh, throughout most of this. And some of the craziest situations I've ever been in, she's been right by my side and you know, vice versa. Um, so she- A different language now, you know? Yes. And I feel like those people start to come into your path and, and then it becomes like the only people you can stand to talk to because they can understand yeah. your language. Because I mean, you just feel kind of like you're screaming all the time and no one hears you. And if they do, it's a different language. Absolutely. And, and that's what you hear in the rooms. It's like you have, you know, your, your friends or your family may be well-meaning, yes. um, but you, but sometimes they're saying like, not only the worst possible advice that could, could be given, but mm -hmm are also, you know, it has, a, it has judgment to it and it's either outwardly judgmental or you're so, you're feeling so sensitive and so beaten down that everything you're hearing sounds judgmental anyway. Yeah. And again, for me, I would cut my losses. I don't need to deal with this. I don't need to listen to this. And, and again, there were benefits because I never internal, like I never felt, I felt a responsibility to him but I didn't feel a responsibility for him. I didn't feel like I made you like this. I should have done something differently. I never felt like it was, I never internalized his drug addiction as to, into being my fault. I think that's good because that, that goes, you can be codependent, but having that healthy self-esteem cuts that down, cuts that, that off. There's no life to that because that's a, that's a terrible part of it because you'll go down that path with them and you become addicted to trying to save them even more. Right. And in a lot of ways, you know, 
I don't, this was awful and everything about this felt awful. But in a lot of ways, you know, he never tried to blame me for this. I think to a certain degree, I think he knows that I wouldn't, I would have told him to fuck off if he had, because I just, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to do that with you. So I, I didn't have to listen to a lot of that nastiness, even though there was definitely nastiness and sadness and a whole shitload of despair that was, that was part of this all along the way. Um, another thing that was an asset to me, which is what brought me back into the rooms so I had not been, so I went to my very first Naranam meeting the summer of 2007 when I was 22. And then I went back the fall of 2013 and I've been in Naranon slash Alanon ever since, um, which is a saving grace. I wouldn't be the partner, daughter, sister, person, whatever that I am without those programs. Um, you know, and again, people showing me grace because I did not have the tools on my own to do this. Um, and again, by being in social services, I didn't have to make like the mental leap into understanding that there's a benefit of support groups and there's a benefit of the shared experience. I knew that. I ran support groups for domestic violence victims. And I also wasn't afraid to share. And I also wasn't afraid to have hard conversations because as my paid job, I, I had hard conversations every day um, and was used to talking about stuff that most people were ashamed of. And I wasn't ashamed of those things. You didn't have that threshold to break. Yes. And so that was also um, a benefit to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So ultimately, we go through those three months of in and out of rehab six different times, crazy every time. And his final time in rehab in, well, in Ohio was um, in Cleveland. And he ends up running away from that Cleveland rehab in the beginning of December. And I, uh, I refused to see him. I refused to see him. I refused to you know, let him, well, he again, technically isn't in my house, but I had the keys to his house, the keys to his car, his car, um, his debit card, credit card. I had all this shit and I wouldn't give any of those things back. So I went to his apartment while he was in this little kind of chaos bubble swarming back from Cleveland down to Columbus, unlocked his apartment and, and left. So he could at least go there um, you know, because I told him and not that I, I don't necessarily think that this was going to occur, but I said to him, if you come to this apartment being mine, I'm going to fucking call the police. <laughs> and I, I, I know that he knew that. And I, and I felt more than comfortable in doing that, especially considering where I worked at, um, if I needed to do those things. And a lot of people at my job knew that this was happening. Again, my girlfriend um, also worked there. She had the same shit going on. And I work with people that were, that were pretty open and understanding to a certain degree about what was happening. So I could deal with it at work if I needed to. Like, again, anyone that goes through this, you get a phone call at one o'clock in the afternoon about some bullshit from them. You come to work, you haven't slept, whatever. Uh, so I could dip in and out of whatever was going on as I needed to. And I'm also grateful, you know, for that. I, I took paid time off if I needed to, um, whatever. So he comes back to Columbus. I don't see him. And then he ultimately, as I described at the time, ran away to South Florida. And the day that that occurred, I, I didn't believe it. He had earlier in the three months of in and out of rehab met this other guy in treatment in Columbus. This guy was from somewhere else in Ohio, like Dayton or Akron or something. And this guy had come to South Florida for rehab maybe one or two times previously and had a brother that was also down here. So my partner calls me and he's like, well, I'm gonna go, I'm, I'm gonna go with this guy's, uh, well, I guess I won't say his name. I'm gonna go with blah, blah, blah mm -hmm. to Florida and we're gonna go to rehab. And I'm just oh, like it was for rehab. It wasn't just taken off to like run away from problems. He was saying, I'm going for treatment. Yes, but I believe none of this because I'm just like, listen, 
you, you've gone to rehab six times in three fucking months, and now you and blah, blah, blah are about to go to fucking South Florida for rehab. As a and team. <laughs> like, I'm not listening to this. And this is also, this is an example of something happening in the middle of my workday, this phone call. And what is happening that I don't know at the time, but later come to find out is he got down here with the other guy through like client brokering, pa patient brokering. Mm -hmm. Um, which I didn't know what that was. And, and quite frankly, neither did he as it was happening. Um, where, like you meet somebody and they seem to be a friend or offering you this opportunity and they're kind of, some treatment center is cutting them a thousand dollar check for yes. referring a person into their treatment center. So, yep. yep. And it's so, not good because it's not usually a good fit. It's not usually a reputable place, but I mean, that it's, it's a nasty business of its own. Yes. And it is alive and well in South Florida. People want to talk about this is the rehab capital. No, this is the relapse capital. <laughs> um, and well, because it's, I'll get to it. It, it is, it is 100% rehab tourism. It is 100% a business that is making tens of thousands of dollars right. off of addicts. And, and off the desperation of their families. 100%. Yeah. So you'll do anything. I mean, we, I don't even like to talk about how much money I spent that first year my son went into recovery and because I was desperate I would have given I would have stepped in front of a bus if I thought that would end it right well and none of it made sense I mean when he was going in and out of rehab at home this was again through his insurance because he still had his job he went on um short-term disability so you know at home you could so for example he went to Talbot he was only able to be in Talbot for like three days um, he was only able to be in Parkside, and this is inpatient. He was only able to be in Parkside for like a week, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But then you're telling me you're going to go to South Florida and you're going to be able to be an inpatient for months. You know, I just, I couldn't believe it. So he, he leaves him and this guy, these plane tickets are paid for. And again, I'm not believing any of this. Um, this guy's parents take him to the airport. They're both supposed to go into to two different cities down here. And by the way, we don't know anything about South Florida. We've both obviously gone to Florida on vacation as people do, but not specifically where he's supposed to be going, to, to be going West Palm Beach. So he gets, he gets down here. Um, at the, when I say that I wouldn't bring his mother in, this is a situation I brought his mother in for because I'm like, you better get your fucking kid because he's now telling me on the phone that he's about to fly down to Florida with blah, blah, blah and go live in a rehab for six months. And I was like, after he's gone in and out of rehab here six times in three months, I don't think so. But it ended up being true. So this is December, 2013. Um, and that particular winter that, uh, the end of December, or I'm sorry, the end of 2013 into the beginning of 2014 was one of the worst winters we had ever had like on record. <laughs> so I'm at home, you know, squeaking by paying the bills because I've absorbed them all eating off brand box macaroni and cheese, <laughs> and, you know, on a beach in rehab, getting a massage. Truly, because that's the way that these places are, are marketed, which is why I say it's rehab tourism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get a private chef. I mean, he, the first place he was in down here, what he had a king size bed that had his own bathroom, like in his bedroom, because th these are houses. These are not facilities. Right. These mansions that people um, use as treatment centers down here. They have a pool, whatever. And it, it was unconscionable to me. I, I was just like, you want to talk about like resentment mm -hmm. and you know it was but a lot of times when he's in the beginning of him being down here the better part of him being down here we didn't speak on the phone we spoke in text which mostly pissed me off because I felt like that was his way of getting off the hook because he couldn't face me a lot of I know I told him you can't come back to this house but at the same time it was he couldn't face or deal with the consequences of what had gone on, you know, between us and the hurt that he had put me through and the shame. It was mostly shame-based. Mm -hmm. um, so then I'm still continuing to go to meetings. I would, I, I remember the Naranam meeting I went to and said, well, he ran away to Florida and everybody's looking at me. 
I mean, the stories that would come out of my mouth about this, I remember people being like, is this real? And I'd be like, should I ask myself if this is real every fucking day? Because I don't know. <laughs> Last I knew it was the spring of 2013. And now it's the, now it's the winter time and it's about to be 2014. And I don't know what happened in my life. Oh, yeah. I, you know what I'm doing. I don't know where I am. I, I don't know what is happening. Um, but I know I sure as hell didn't ask for this. And that's the thing is that life problems, whatever they may be, they don't need your permission to happen. (laughs) And nobody has to ask you. And you also don't have to be okay with the fact that these things are occurring, but you have to accept the fact that they're occurring. And And you have choices to make about them occurring, but if you keep fighting the fact that they're occurring, you get, you can get lost in that. Yes. And, and that's, you know, how you have people stay in denial Mm -hmm. about this, you know, for as long as they do. And you see the, you know, this takes a toll on everybody, no matter where you are in this. Um, But the longer you stay in denial, the longer that you don't face these things head on, um, the worse it is for you. And, you know, you're not, you're not doing yourself any favors um, to, to not be, to not acknowledge what is happening and then to not figure out what am I going to do about what is happening? Because it's here. The shit is here and you're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not going to go away and you definitely can't will it away. So what are you going to do about it? And that is where things started to take a turn for me in regards to my own recovery. Um, so if I didn't necessarily make it obvious, his leaving was at the time the worst. I mean, it was like a million daggers in my heart. It was the worst possible thing. I felt abandoned. Um, I felt betrayed. I felt invalidated. Um, I, I was scared he was going to die in Florida. And, you know, how would we ever find your body and, and who were, you know, who would find your body and just all of this stuff and, you know, fully, fully believing as anybody that gets deep into this does that he was going to die. I, I had every reason to believe that. Um, I could list those reasons for days. I could list, I have a, a good memory too. Like everybody jokes about how good my memory is. So that's also um, a double-edged sword because it's a lot of shit to remember and it's a lot of shit to be mad about when you remember every, every detail of this, um, you know, to a T. So I, I think in the beginning I was in a lot of shock, but so outside of this being what at the time felt like the worst possible thing, it's exactly what I needed because for as quote unquote good as I thought I was doing at managing this, my focus was still primarily on him because just as I said, when you go into these rooms, you're looking for all the differences between you and whoever else is in there. So in the way that I was describing, well, I, I it was a benefit to me that I already knew this type of um, therapy, talking um, in a support group helps, you know, people get better. I, I knew those things um, fully because I, I did like I said, that kind of stuff is a job. But a lot of times I, I spend a lot of time thinking, okay, like, well, I get that. I'm here for it. However, let's still just get him under control. So then we can just go back to normal. I wasn't thinking about myself because I could sit in these rooms and think about like, well, I'm not like this one and I'm not like that one. And, you know, I'm not afraid to share and I'm not out of touch with my feelings. I was very much in touch with my feelings. Um, but again, what, it, it does you no good when you don't have tools for these things. You can be aware of this shit all day long. You can also be right. That was the other thing. I, I wanted to be so right in this, but it doesn't matter. Just like, it, it doesn't matter. You don't get like some kind of award at the end of this for being right. You don't. And I'll tell you, you know, they, they always say, talking about in the rooms about how we have to have one more idea and ex- exhaust all of our ideas. We have to say it one more way or get somebody else to say it or you know just one more idea that's going to get things back to normal and it doesn't really matter because even if you conquer it for a span of time i've always said it's kind of like the movie predator that from a long time ago it shows up in a different look and disguise and in a different way and comes in and you have to conquer it in another way so right. you never really 
I think once you give up that battle of getting total victory over it and learn how it might go away for the rest of your life, that might be, I know that's everyone's goal, but either way, you're never going to have total victory over it because it's always going to show back up somewhere, somehow, some way. I'm always going to be attracted to the sickest people in every room. I'm always going to have that, you know, mother bruise or, or I'm always going to be triggered back to fear that my son might die. And, you know, those things come back over and over and over. We never truly conquer it, but we can get better. Yes. And for me, in being in the rooms, again, a lot of focus, especially, um, so I went to Naranon primarily because I, I needed to be around other people. Because again, at home in, in Columbus or in Ohio in general, the Midwest, everyone's on heroin. So it felt good to be in the rooms where that's what everybody else is talking about too. Um, and that the craziness happening in your house is similar to the craziness happening in my house. That I felt um, validated by. Yeah. But a lot of times, which again, this is more me talking about how I felt then versus the way that I look at it now. Um, I was the only partner in these rooms. It was, it was all parents. It was all parents with their adult kids at, at, at whatever range of adult we're talking, 18 to 50, um, who were primarily on opiates and if, and if not just outright heroin. And again, I know now that you can relate to anybody and it doesn't matter about the substance and it doesn't matter specifically about the relationship. But at the time I really wanted um, the relationship to match. And again, talking about how, because I was going through so much, I was definitely sent more sensitive to what other people said or did. I remember this parent saying in one of the Naranon meetings, well, that's just your boyfriend. Why don't you just leave him? <laughs> and I also remember thinking, this isn't the same lady, but this was another parent in the meeting talking about their kid. Well, your kid is 50. So let's talk about that. <laughs> this is not a child. This is a whole <laughs> lot of thoughts that we, we all have. Right. And so then I started going to Al-Anon because I, I was able to be in more situations where I was dealing with um, partners. And at the time, which again, is not the way that I feel now or look at the situation now, going to that and listening to people specifically talk about alcohol, I was able to listen like, well, shit, these people that are alcoholics are just as crazy as these people that are heroin addicts. Right. It's just a slower grind. It just takes yes. longer. Yes. Yes. And so I, I did feel right at home. So I went to, so then I was committed to Al-Anon. I went, um, I went to Al-Anon regularly. Um, I spoke in meetings, I chaired meetings, blah, blah, blah. But I did not have a sponsor yet and still really wasn't necessarily focused on that. Um, and you hear from the rooms, no matter which side of the program you're on, you know, the difference. You can go to, you know, meeting makers make it, 90 meetings in 90 days, whatever. You can go to meetings all day long, whether you talk to them or not. But working the program is working the steps. Yeah. And working the steps is not some shit you do by yourself. Working the steps is something that you do with a sponsor. Because the whole concept is not, oh, well, I'm going to sit here and do this workbook, you know, because what, whatever program's got a million workbooks to work the steps. And the, the problem is your thinking. So how are you supposed to do this workbook successfully when you're solely relying on your own thinking? Nobody else is looking at this thing. Your own thinking is what got you into the rooms. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so again, because I wasn't necessarily, I was more than willing to be there and, and go through these motions, but I was not willing at all yet to shut up and listen to what other people had to say. Um, I, I wasn't interested in a sponsor. I, I would think like, well, maybe in the future, maybe blah, blah, blah. And there were definitely plenty of people. Uh, sometimes I went to women only meetings. And th so there were plenty of women in these rooms who I liked, I thought were strong, that I admired, that I thought if I were to pick a sponsor, I would want it to be you, these types of things. But I, I wasn't willing to do it. And I was subsequently still taking, you know, still accepting text messages from him down here. And he also um, would, he was still using when he was down here on and off. Um, and then obviously in part of that using came the chaos of using. Um, and this, the shit that he did down here was just as bad as the shit that he did at home. But one of the saving graces, which again, it was, he needed to be removed from me. 
And that was an act, you know, greater than myself that took him away down here as much as I, you know, couldn't believe it. And as much as I, um, you know, was personally offended by it, quite frankly, (laughs) because it was just like, how dare you? How, how dare you do all this? And then you don't, you don't come here and show your face and deal with the consequences. Cause I got a big consequence for you. And you know, that's how I felt. And he knows that that's how I felt. You know, he know we know each other in and out the good and the bad. So he knew whether I made it clear in text or not. Cause I really didn't because quite frankly, after the running away down here happened, I was like scared to say anything else. I was like, shit, like, how much fucking further are you going to go? You're already over a thousand miles away. Like, oh, I don't like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't even want to know what's going to happen next. This has all been insane. So I would mostly kind of just respond to him without how I truly felt behind it. Um, And again, when it came to the fact that he got into his little bullshit down here, I didn't have to deal with it. I would find out about it, but it's like, I didn't have to see what he looked like afterwards. I didn't have to, you know, go sit in the lobby of a rehab, seeing if he was going to be accepted, bring him cigarettes, put money on whatever, you know, I didn't have to do any of those things. And that was like, great. So the distance and the fact that it's not like, you know, I couldn't have flown down here or been driven down here or something like that, but you can't do all that on a whim in the same way I could drive, you know, 20 minutes in whatever direction in Columbus. Right. Put your own life on hold, leave work, get up in the middle of the night. You're not going to do all of that when you're in another state. Yes. Usually you're not. Right. And so that was was a positive. That was a much needed positive. And that put like the brakes on a lot of things. Thanks for listening. We're going to pick back up next week. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found in Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast.